you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I, I would I tee that up with you know we, we talk about navigating navigating in uh, public projects, public engineering, navigating leadership issues, uh, and you know sappers uh, find a way to to get through the obstacle, right? So hardest challenge you've had to navigate and or leadership lesson you'd like to share? Hardest one. Wow. I think <clears throat> uh, I think they're related. So I'll say it might be more general than you want, but I can offer some specific examples. Being imaginative enough, because that is the only thing limiting you. Like I said, authority and responsibility are lying around on the ground in any organization. And you, if you pick them up, you can swing a big bat and you will advance. You will gain influence. You will be effective. You will take others along with you and help them be effective and grow a stronger organization and a team. And you'll have fun and you'll succeed. And, you know, everybody loves to be on a winning team, right? Uh, everyone hates being on a losing team. So, Amen. But sometimes it, you have to think expansively about your role, even though you were hired to do this. And this is what you've always done, or this is what this position has always done in whatever institution. Well, you know what? Who cares what it's always done? What does the situation call for now? And that's sometimes a lot different than what, what the position was set up for. For God's sake, I served as president of the Mississippi River Commission. It was it was, it was assembled in 1879 to solve other issues that we're not facing today, you know, um, and so we're not going to do things exactly the way they did them back then. Um, and so too often, I think people don't question enough. Are they organized right? Should their office be reorganized? Who's doing what? Change the position descriptions. Sometimes it's as simple as that to address the current needs. Sometimes there's all sorts of things you're doing that you should just stop doing. It's not needed anymore. The problem's been fixed, but because no one's thought about taking it away, it's just a thing that continues on and on without really adding much value. You know, and so what's the point of that? Um, so a, a commercial example, it's not even my example, The Tesla today is valued higher than the three big three automakers in the U.S. Now, they only make half a million cars a year. They're not producing six million cars a year like the big three. I mean, so how is that possible? Well, Tesla realized, <clears throat> unlike the big three, the, real, the big three have realized late that they're not an automotive company. They're a computer and software company that has a car built around it. That's what they are. That's what they are today. That's what they'll be in the future, especially with autonomous vehicles, with autonomous navigation. All, you know, that is the future with electrification. And so now they figured it out and they're trying to catch up. But that's why Tesla's valuation is so high, not because they're outproducing the majors. They're not. Uh, you know, is their car better? Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, I could say, you know, maybe no in terms of extended range. You know, Tesla also paid attention to building a charging network. Whereas the big three never thought about that with their electric vehicles because they were used to having gasoline stations owned by the oil company majors for years. They never had to think about it. So they didn't think about it with their electric cars either. Oh, shit. <laughs> so now... You're playing catch up and you need a distribution network that you don't have, or you need to adjust your plug 
to fit a Tesla plug, which is going to cost you <laughs> to get the Tesla design. But you know what? You know, I'd say pay the man. But, you know, so Tesla thought about this thing from beginning to end before getting into this market and had a very different vision of what this market was. So that's an example. That's a commercial example that everybody can kind of understand and relate to. I mean, there's other examples uh, that we could use. I'll use an example from the construction industry. We had some initial reconstruction work for the military, contracted out early in the war, and then the security situation got terrible in Iraq, you know, that first year. <clears throat> and uh, there was one particular company down in uh, uh, one of the bases we were building for the new Iraqi army to be trained and generated to help us defeat the insurgency in Iraq and to stabilize their own country and protect it in the future. And these guys were, they were just sandbagging the contract. They were milking it, right? That's what my opinion was. You know, they were almost done, but we're never quite done, you know? And I had so many more requirements and we were going to get the money for it from DC, which they didn't know. So I went on a site visit down to the project and I had them show me around and I talked to their team there, this company and, and I had a, basically a feedback as a breakfast champion session. I said, okay, none of this work is bad, but you know, you should have been done with this thing six weeks ago. I have got $2 billion worth of work. I'm getting ready to contract. And you, you know what? With all the pissing around that you're doing on this contract, closing it out, you're never getting a dollar of it. You will never see a dollar of it because I need this to be done fast. We're trying to generate an entire army in a year and you're, you know, you're going to take six weeks to figure, figure out a punch list. Get out of here, man. I can't have that. I need people who are going to get things done. I don't care if they're Chinese or Japanese or Turkish. You know, I don't care what flag flies on their tax return. You know, we're going to get it. And I was doing other things to bring other contracting agencies into Iraq that was not approved by central authority, let's just say. And uh, so all kinds of things, which, by the way, other generals saw me doing as lieutenant colonel. And they were like, holy cow. One of them eventually became my boss, Tom Bostic, as the chief of engineers. <laughs> he was like, holy cow, this guy is operating like a flag officer now. He's he's paying no attention to the structure as it exists and making the structure that needs to exist, right? So you can do it. And, of course, this company became a great performer in the second tranche because they got that feedback. And, you know, I was scratching their itch. Their concern was one thing, and it was, should have been another, right? They just weren't – we weren't communicating, right? So um, I'll stop there because we can go on and on. Yeah. Well, and any specific tip for, for especially our public agencies for, for the leadership to, to be able to rethink their org, org chart, rethink their mission, rethink their policies and processes inside uh, to modernize and innovate? Well, first you have to want to, Right. You have to want to help your agency be more effective. And the, the public deserves that. The country and society need it. Uh, I think we're at a point where we're going to be given so much work to do in some of these agencies that they're going to have to modify and adapt how they do their work in order to be able to deliver it all in the socially, economically, and politically relevant timeline. So we've just had the COVID-19 relief bill passed, which, by the way, had about 280 to $300 billion worth of Infrastructure for communities and states built into the community and state aid portion for FAST Act and other uh, mass transit and other uh, uh, transportation uh, needs of the communities. That was 280 to 300 B billion. 
billion. <laughs> yes, it was a $1.9 trillion package. Probably the most significant piece of economic and social legislation passed in America since the New Deal. Uh, frankly, that's my opinion. Uh, this what just passed in reconciliation. And unfortunately, without a single vote from you know the faction that believes government is a problem and shouldn't do anything, which is just dumb. Uh, we can have a separate discussion about that on another podcast, <laughs> obviously, um, because I'm not I'm not registered with any party. I you know I didn't even vote in the army. I'm not uh, you know a political person uh, in terms of my bias. You know that I'm a member of a tribe. I, I don't have that. I just want to go where the facts lead me. Uh, so and, and so what's coming. Is even this week, the president is being briefed on a minimum three three trillion dollar infrastructure plan. <clears throat> My personal view, it's going to grow probably to three and a half to four trillion before they start negotiating about it. It's not just going to cover roads, runways, rails, rivers, ports. It's going to cover broadband. It's going to cover all kinds of digital architecture and uh, availability and accessibility. It's going to address social inequalities and economic inequalities. It's going to address climate resilience. Uh, it's going to be an enormous package and it will be able to be passed in reconciliation again later this year because they have two reconciliations available to them this year. They just used FY20s to pass COVID-19. Hmm. So all they'll need is 51 votes in the Senate. And with the vice president, they have those. So um, it's going to mean a lot. And the agencies are going to be called upon to deliver this. This is going to be the COVID money was FY22 to 25 or FY22, 23 money. You can't sit on your hands and analyze the problem to death. You're going to have to get out there and make this stuff happen. So I suspect that the the the, the duration of the money for the infrastructure plan will be multi-year, but it won't be, you know, non-expiring money. So you're going to have to modify your organization to deal with this workload. Because, you know, President Biden ran the American Reconstruction Recovery Act for the Obama administration. As it turns out, a much too small economic uh, recovery bill, you know, 890 billion with about 90 billion worth of infrastructure in it. It probably should have been two to three times that size to jumpstart the economy again. That's why we had such a slow uh, economic expansion and recovery of the employment numbers. It could have been faster if we'd done something different. That's what government can do if it wants to. Government nationalized the economy in one World War II, a global war on eight, seven continents, right? You know, uh, government can do things. Uh, now, it doesn't always do them efficiently. It doesn't always do them uh, the best, but it's it's better at taking into account all the stakeholders' views than many corporations are, who often try to externalize their costs of business while they privatize the money and the profits from their business process. That's not right. That's not capitalism. That's something else. That's uh, warlordism and, uh, you know, crony capitalism, something something different. So, uh, So I think these agencies will be called upon including the core, including Bureau of Reclamation, including uh, VA, including uh, NAF, Naval Facilities Command, including you name the other entities. VA. Things. Yes, absolutely, VA, uh, DOE. Uh, I think a lot of entities, in fact, the Department of Transportation, I suspect that Mr. Buttigieg, the secretary, is considering all the different ways that they can try to be able to put money into the ground and gain an economic effect and social effect for the American citizen faster and more powerfully, which is a very exciting time to be a public servant in government when people recognize there's, there's no one in America who doesn't realize that our infrastructure needs to be retooled. Everybody agrees on that. They just don't agree about who should pay. Well, in this case, 
this government is going to take care of that problem for you. Some of it's going to be borrowed because we got a 0% interest rate. Some of it's going to be, you know, uh, revocations of tax breaks for the ultra wealthy, you know, boo-hoo. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, that's going, it's going to happen. Uh, and, uh, I think it will set us up to dominate the planet as a society, socially, politically, culturally, economically, you know, athletically, you know, artistically for the next 50 years in the same way that we were able to accomplish in the 20th century because of the efforts of our parents and grandparents. And, you know, that's what I want for my son, who's, you know, 26 now. And, you know, eventually his children, whenever they come, right? Um, you know, uh, I don't want to preside over a fading power because we're so short-sighted that we don't invest in ourselves. I think that's silly. And, and it's uh, been a policy for a while and it's not smart. Uh, and I think we have a chance right now to break that mentality. I hope we will. Uh, and I think if you're going to considering public service, now's the time to do it. You can always leave after the, the rush, you know, the peak is over <laughs> and then you you've done amazing things for your society and you go on to do something else. Just like this kid in the battalion that I gave the feedback to, right? He yeah. served honorably, nobly, courageously, he did a great thing. And now he's done other great things in his life for his community and his family and his society. So probably a good place for you to stop. So, <laughs> well, typically we talk about public policy, uh, but I think that that covers some public policy. I'd, I'd be curious if there's anywhere uh, the audience could read about the power of uh, infrastructure investment for the growth of the economy. So if you don't have that answer off the top of your head, maybe we could hit that in the show notes. Well, sure, we can. But you know, the International Finance Corporation, the, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, probably the Asian Development Bank has these studies now too. But lots of people have done studies around the world, not just in the United States or Europe or, or the Organization of Economic Cooperation you know, and Development, OECD countries. If you look at any database of economic research, National Bureau of Economic Research, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Federal Reserve Economic Data System, FRED, you'll see that when a country invests a certain amount of money out of its economy into infrastructure that then exists for a long time and enables other economic activity, it has a snowball effect that pays off in an accelerating way. So... In the first year, if you spend 1% of your gross domestic product on infrastructure versus, say, 0%, or, or spend 2% versus 1% last year. So I'm going to spend 2% this year. That's, by the way, in America, that's a big jump because we have a $21 trillion annual, annual economy. So that's a lot of money. Um, in the very first year, your economy is already growing about 04 to 0.5% faster than it would have otherwise. And by year two or three, you're growing at one and a half percent faster. Now we've been stuck growing at 2% for the last 10 years, 11 years. There's nothing wrong with that, but we could have been growing at three and a half to 4%. You know, you know who did when the, when the economic crisis hit in 2008, the Chinese did something. They doubled down their investment on in infrastructure and they invested in infrastructure enormously. And a lot of people, Mid-decade, five years ago, we're criticizing them for all these white elephants and how they were going into debt and the humma, humma, humma. Well, you know what? In the, in the years from 2008 to 2016, China doubled their gross domestic product. And those buildings and those roads and those rail lines and those riverine systems to carry commercial traffic and personal traffic 
and recreation, they'll be there for another hundred years, helping that economy thrive, right? Like the blood system in your body. And uh, trust me, when the Chinese look back at what they did in 08, there are some debt mavens in the US that say they made a mistake and the Chinese do not think so. <laughs> and I agree with them. They're not wrong. They're, they, they, this works. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a slot machine that pays off every time you put a coin in it. So my question is, why would you stop putting coins in it, right? So invest in that infrastructure. Not everything is an investment. Some things are cash payment. It's consumption. But infrastructure is an investment, and it pays you back for years and years and years. In the Mississippi Valley, just a flood control investment has paid back probably 250 bucks per dollar invested in protected, you know, property protected and live saved. That's wow. a low, by the way, that's a very conservative estimate, right? Uh, because we have lots of rules that don't allow us to be too hinky with our, our estimates, you know. But that's, you know, there's all kinds of payoffs like that lying yeah. around the ground out there <laughs> for you to harvest for our people, for our country, for our tribe, right? Uh, and so, you know, I, I want to get me some more of that. <laughs> All right. A little bit more of a softball here. Your favorite quote and why? Uh, well, I think uh, I have a couple, but the one that probably resonates for the audience best here is uh, it's from Danton, one of the revolutionary leaders in France when they overthrew the king. And tried to create not just a new government, but they tried to create a whole new society. And so they didn't succeed. And they ended up in a bloody mess for a while. And Danton, of course, lost his head. But uh, my favorite quote from Danton, he has a number of them that are quite good. <laughs> my favorite is, though, when uh, the revolution first occurred, of course, the royal families around Europe were not really excited about the idea of the people ruling themselves and getting rid of the king. That was not a popular move among the royal families of Europe. So they you know, all invaded France from the British side from the German side, Italian side from the Spanish side. And they, you know, the army had fallen apart because the regime was gone. It was the Royal army. Now there's no Royal. So they were busy recreating a military and creating a people's defense and really doing the first mass mobilization army in the history of the planet. And while these forces were marching on Paris to crush the revolution, Danton was rallying uh, the spirit of the people in the, in the, in the in the uh, parliament and his uh, one of his speeches he concluded with we need and now we need audacity and more audacity and always audacity right uh and it's you know il nous faut de l'audace et toujours et encore de l'audace et toujours de l'audace and i love that quote because it's always true no matter what time you're born into you know there are issues now that can be solved now and should be, right? Let's have a new problem next year, five years from now, right? We're going to have a problem. Amen. But it'll be a new one, right? I'm tired of the same old freaking problem. <laughs> so uh, I love that one. He also had a good one when he was led to the gallows, you know, to the guillotine. He said to the executioner, I wish, I hope I'll be this cool and collected when it's my time <laughs> you know, to pass, shuffle off this mortal coil. He looked at the executioner, he said, when you're finished, hold my head up for the crowd to see. It is well worth seeing. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is fabulous. That is. Like, okay. <laughs> yep. 
You're all right. <laughs> That's great. All right, I have the engineer commandant's reading list here from from uh, what year were you in command of the or the, at the schoolhouse? Uh, from uh, ten to late twelve, twenty eleven to twenty thirteen. Yeah. Um. So I'll reference this in the notes because I think it's it's uh evergreen. But any books since then that you would uh you would want to gift out or or recommend to the group? Yeah, so many really. But uh, one for today's discussion, I like to highlight. It's a, it's a history of the human evolution by an Israeli uh, a, a scientist uh, and a writer named Yuval Harari called Sapiens. And what's fascinating about it is he really spends a lot of time looking at the cognitive revolution that occurred in humans and humanoids from about 70,000 to 40,000 years ago. So up until 70,000 years ago, we were kind of a middling mammal who was more likely to be prey than we were to be predator or just as likely. And we didn't control or dominate anything, right? We were struggling to survive. And in that period of 30,000 years, we began to evolve faster than physical nature. So it wasn't from generation to generation because of a lot of reasons we developed spoken language and symbology to socially collaborate in ways that not all animals can, some do to a certain extent, but not on now a global scale the way we can. Um, what happened was because of culture, because of language and practices and customs and faith systems, we began to evolve faster than nature, abstractly, right? And now, and so what happened was in 10,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution occurred and we began to do settled agriculture, which allowed the planet to carry way more people, not always with a higher standard of living than before, but we could carry an enormous number of more people and survive and thrive, right, uh, on the planet. And then we led to the Industrial Revolution, right, 250, 300 years ago, uh, continuing into the 20th century. And then now we're in the Digital Revolution and we are achieving things. You know, I'm talking to you from North Carolina, you're in New Jersey, I don't know where these other folks are. And uh, that was not possible 10, 20 years ago, right? right. We couldn't. I could do it in the army with special equipment, but this, it was, it was the size of a van, you know, that was powering it for me. So, um, <clears throat> you know, 25 years ago, we couldn't do it. This place was where the tobacco field met the pine forest, you know, it was like being on the moon. No one would be talking to me here. I'd be chopping wood in the backyard and, you know, going outside to use the bathroom. So, uh, but what's happening in the next 20 years, our society is going to change even more than it's changed over the last 300 because of a number of things, bioengineering, synthetic biology. We are now doing things with gene therapy, with gene uh, adaptation, not just in things, uh, you know, plants and other things, but in, with people, these mRNA virus uh, vaccines are an example of how fast they can be turned. Now, they're not always universally applicable, the mRNA vaccines, but they're very versatile and they're very adaptable which is what you're going to need in an environment where there's always you know, viruses adapting, right? So we've already seen it. You know, polio, Salk found the polio vaccine. It took probably 12 to 15 years to vaccinate everybody in the U.S. against polio. And by the way, we, we hurt a lot of people up front you know, right. because we didn't know how to do it right. Well, look, we're going to have all of America's going to be vaccinated this year. A year to a year and a half after this whole new virus appeared out of nowhere. Right. God, that's what I'm Amazing. talking about, right? That's what I'm talking about. And so we are. We have developed materials that didn't exist in nature; have never existed before. DARPA did a project. They wanted uh, nineteen. They wanted uh, a thousand new 
molecules that had never existed to be created. And they set that challenge in 2016. And in March of 2019, they hit the thousandth molecule. And now, so what? Who cares? But they can be used in all manner of production, of preservation, of uh, any kind of, even a low-tech industry like snowmaking on ski slopes. Hmm. Well, you know, it's getting warmer in the Rockies because of climate change. And they have a problem. They are, they are get crowded and it gets hot, you know, when the sun's out and the snow melts. That's no good for business. So they make snow, but, you know, spraying water, who ho hum that's very 19th century. Well, they put in these long molecules, synthetic molecules that they add to the water stream. And it makes the water more, the ice, the snow more temperature resistant and more stress resistant to the skis. Wow. The snow coats the slopes longer, lasts longer, takes more people, still great skiing. So even that low-tech industry is being changed by synthetic biology and, you know, these new materials, let alone artificial intelligence and machine learning and what that's going to do to routinize certain pattern recognitions and incorporate them into the functioning of objects and things in a way that we, we can't even begin to predict now, you know. 30 years ago, when I came in the Army, you tell me I'm going to have a computer bigger than the biggest computer ever imagined uh, in my pocket uh, that can do all these crazy things. I could probably talk to the moon on this thing, right? <laughs> um, I said, you're, you're drunk. You know, you're out of your mind. It's going to be like that every five to 10 years now. It's going to be, it's accelerating. We are evolving even faster, abstractly, through the benefit of the digital revolution powered by the industrial revolution, powered before that by the agricultural revolution and all these windows of this rapid discontinuous change. Now, the thing about that is rapid discontinuous change is destabilizing and it creates a lot of stress and it can create a lot of bad behavior and acting out and fear and violence as much as it will bring these enormous benefits medically and, you know, socially and physically, you know, in terms of food production, other things. So we have to be able to manage that. And to do that, we have to think imaginatively and outside of what we've always done before. Last thing I'll say about this, and Sapiens is the book, I'll remind everybody. Yep. Since you asked. The average age of the scientists who put a man on the moon, we had lots of engineers in this country and lots of mathematicians, but the average age of the engineers that put men and women, you know, men on the moon, there were women that worked with them, you know, doing the math and the engineering. The average age was 25 years old. Because we were doing something we'd never done before. It didn't matter if I had 50 years experience as a civil engineer. I'm not building a dam. You know, I'm building a rocket to try to hit a pinpoint bullseye on this planet, you know, 250,000 miles away that's moving, rotating and traveling. And uh, at, by the way, at ridiculous speeds, you know, 15,000 miles an hour around the earth. Holy crap. And I'm using the technology <laughs> of the 1960s to do it, which is insane, right? So it didn't matter that they weren't experienced. It mattered that they were able to think fresh about how to solve these new problems. And we so need that now. Fresh thinking, not just from the young people, but from everybody, including the old farts like myself, <laughs> right? Because that's going to be the key to extracting the most success from all these great opportunities that we have lying around on the ground. That's right. <laughs> All right. Dead or alive, if you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be and what would you do? You know, um, I can tell you right now, I'd talk to them and pick their brains about their life experiences and compare notes. 
it doesn't sound exciting, but I'm a, a little bit of a bon vivant. I like delicious food. I like a good cocktail. So that's what I do. I mean, I like doing things. I like skiing. I like getting in boats. I like water skiing, whatever. But these, I'm going to go for people that are going to engage my brain housing. Curious group. conversation at the Sapper yes. Lounge. And so, uh, you know, I think uh, some one you've probably heard of, uh, Nassim Taleb is a uh, writer. He wrote The Black Swan. He wrote Anti-Fragile. Uh, he wrote a lot about... Uh, you know, finances and how silly financial industry can be. Uh, and, you know, I don't agree with him about everything, but he's very interesting and he has an interesting way to look at things, right? Lots of reasons for that. He was born in Lebanon and grew up elsewhere, came to the U.S. in the system from some other perspective, excuse me, but he's very brilliant and uh, insightful and so interesting to talk to, right? Um, and then uh, Steve Levitt is a guy who wrote the Freakonomics books, yeah. you know, where He's done research and has found some very surprising results on why things have happened or, or will, you know, you know, do happen that you don't, that are counterintuitive. Right. And he was willing to follow the data and not, you know, cling to a theory, you know, in, in advance. Right. He, and he discovered all kinds of interesting things, which were very entertaining presented in his books and in a podcast that he does with a guy named Stephen Dubner uh, called Freakonomics Radio. And they, and there, there's still some variant of it on it went on for, Seven or eight years. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Just holy cow. Would never have made the connection, but you found it, right? Because you were willing to have an open mind, right? And look at it. And and they discovered things that they didn't expect to discover. They were going after one thing and found another. That's the story of scientific advancement, right? right. So those two. And then I have a close friend who's a personal friend that no one's heard of yet, but they probably will in a few years. Peter McGuire. He's lived like five lives. He's a couple <laughs> years younger than me. But he's done so many different things. He was a professional surfer. He was a punk. He was a bit of a drug dealer for marijuana as a young man. He ended up he ended up getting a PhD in history and studying uh, war crimes uh, rectification after wars. And he studied under Telford Taylor at Columbia, who actually ran the three Nuremberg processes that we ran after World War II. Telford Taylor, phenomenal man. Uh, and uh, so he became a UN war crimes investigator in Cambodia after the regime of Pol Pot was deposed and the UN went in to investigate the tremendous crimes that were committed and the mass slaughter that occurred there. So he has all those stories. He's actually uh, publishing a book shortly on the, on the, uh, the uh, Mayaguez mission, the Marines that went in to save the Mayaguez uh, people where we actually left three Marines behind. It's a tragic and disgusting story about senior leader misbehavior on the part of the Nixon administration. And uh, that is coming out soon. And he has the accounts of the Marines involved and the accounts of their Khmer Rouge opponents. Oh, wow. There's no gaps. We know exactly what happened here. We know what they were all thinking, which wasn't quite right, but we know exactly what happened here. There's no, no room for leeway to say, oh, this is in doubt, right? You know, and, but he's written a book. He's a jujitsu <clears throat> trainer, instructor. He's worked with the most crazy people that you can imagine. He's close friends with the Gracie family, Ricks and Gracie. He's just written an autobiography of Ricks and Gracie that's about to be published. Uh, it's already got like 12,000 in advance orders. It's going to sell out. It's, uh, uh, and there's going to be a movie. Uh, the movie rights have been sold. He's already, he has a book on the history of the drug trade from Southeast Asia to the U S which began with the surfer network in the seventies. And then the, it died in the early eighties, which we don't need to talk about the whole story, but he's actually doing a TV series that's fictionalized for Netflix with Jose Padilla, the guy who did Narcos. Yeah. They have two seasons in the can of episodes written. So those will be out in a couple of years. This guy actually uh, is the world's most interesting man. He's damn close if he isn't, right? And, you know, when we first met him, 
because I met through a mutual a friend that, that Peter has and that I have, you know, who lives in New York and is not here. And he put us in contact. And when we first met, my Marianne, you know, my wife, Marianne, you know, lovely lady, charming. She was like, how can this, all these things have happened to this man, you know, because he's had five lives, you know, he's just a fascinating. And with all that richness of experience, right. There's so many things that he's learned the hard way often, you know, and sometimes because he was able to figure it out on the spot, you know, and so interesting, fascinating, funny, a sense of perspective, you know, realistic, not an ideologue or a zealot or, you know, inflexible kind of fool, you know, just uh, and so I think the the repartee and the banner, uh, along with the cocktails, would be <laughs> enjoyable with those three. I could go on. There's more. There's so many, but those three are a good start. I like them. Uh, legacy. What do you want on your tombstone, sir? <laughs> yeah, you know, as a leader, one of the things you should do every day, whether you're a leader in your church or in your family or in your scout troop or your Rotary Club or your company, or your staff element in the Army, or your unit in the Army, or the Navy, or the Marines, whatever. One of the things you should do every day is develop other leaders, right? Because we're never going to have an excess amount of leadership, and we we always seem to be running short, right? So that's one of the responsibilities you have to the ones who come after you. And so I would say there's a, there's a cone of, you know, mentorees and people that I believe that I've helped become more of who they should be and what they are internally inside, you know, along the way. And some of them are still in the military and some, you know, many of them most are out obviously doing other things. And so that's one of my legacies. It's not one you can put in one spot and put on a tombstone, but that's what I view as my real legacy, you know, and now as a consultant, the clients that I help and the successes that they have, they're really my legacy now in this phase, you know, as I try to keep the economy of my American tribe strong, that's, you know, contributing to the society. But if I had, you know, I used to say a long time ago that I wanted on my tombstone, good soldier, good man. And I would add one thing now, as I've gotten a little older, I would, good soldier, good man, fun guy. (laughs) (laughs) That I think would be perfect. I mean, what more could you want? (laughs) I'd have to agree. And, and, And I would have to reiterate, I mean, present company, included i you know you you certainly have increased my value in the world and and uh helped me as a leader uh so i can attest to that despite you being the one that had to sign my papers to allow me to leave active duty after, <laughs> after many mentor sessions i wasn't uh, happy to sign them as you wrote <laughs> yeah. uh so sir we close it out in in uh true philadelphia fashion with the great words of andy reed the time is yours what do you want to share with the uh, with the audience that we haven't covered yet? Oh, I think we've covered so much. I would just say um, <clears throat> you have to eat to survive. You might as well eat something delicious, right? Take the little slight extra time to do it and enjoy yourself along the way, you know, because the, the journey is the destination for sure. I didn't always understand that as a young person, but I totally understand it now. So I have some cocktail recipes that you can put on the uh, <laughs> show <notes>. notes. Perfect. <laughs> some that I've invented that are very delicious. You know, the classics, they can look up elsewhere. But I got a couple of creations that are quite tasty. One of them goes with a cigar after dinner. One of them is good with dinner. And, uh, you know, I have about five I've invented, but I'll only give you two, you know, just because I don't want people to think I'm a lush. Perfect. Uh, uh, 
I just uh, I just enjoy a good quaff now and then with a nice meal. So, and good conversation as we talked about just a minute ago. Amen. Well, looking forward to COVID being over so we could get that uh, date at the Sapper Lounge booked. Yeah, I'm ready for the offsite, the MCFA yeah. offsite. Yeah, there we go. We'll host it here. Well, appreciate your time, sir, and uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And I'm sure we'll have you back. Uh, to comment on how the infrastructure bill is uh, is coming along and being deployed. Uh, okay. So thank oh, you. Great. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. If you enjoy this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People in Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our, our newsletter and learn more about the MCFA DNA. Last but not least, we are hiring junior and senior. If you want to get uh, opportunities in the industry, we were just talking about uh, engineers, architects, planners, constructors. Uh, we want to talk to you. So thanks for listening. And until next time, have a great rest of the week.